Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. There's a lot more to that song, but we'll get to that later. Today I want to read to you out of the uh, book of John, 13th chapter. So he got up from the table, he being Jesus, got up from the table, the last supper that they're having took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And Jesus came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter explained, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? Blank faces probably at this point because he continues on. You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. If I've given you an example to follow, I've given you an example to follow, do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Father, I really pray that you'd anoint your word and that um, your spirit would speak to us today beyond what words are uttered. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat if you would, please. Before I begin um, this series and this conversation today, I want to back up a little bit to last week. I was speaking to the youth in general, but really to all of us. But one of the things we talked about is calling on the Lord. And I want to highlight one thing, is when you are calling on the Lord, when you are seeking Him, I want to encourage you to seek His face, not His hands. What I mean by that is that when you're seeking him, seek to understand who he is, to enter into a relationship and know his character, not just what he can do for you or give to you. Seek his face. Seek his identity and who he is, not just his hands. Now, that does get a good lead-in for this conversation of who is Jesus because I think too often we just turn to him in desperation or in moments of need, and generally speaking, we are looking for his hands and what he can do and give to us. And this conversation is really at its core about his identity. Who is Jesus? Something I was conscious of a couple of years back, and it seems to be a seasonal thing, and maybe you've noticed this too. Just about this time of year, a week or two before this, a week or two after this, leading up to Easter, it seems like there is a plethora, a whole gathering of, of media presentations exploring who Jesus is. Oftentimes they say who he was, as in he's dead and gone and passed, 
But there's all sorts of things that seem to come out at this time, especially magazines. I don't know if you've seen some of these in the past, but uh, let's begin with one of these real quick. If you'll toss that up there, that first magazine cover coming now. There we go. Time magazine, who was Jesus? A starting new movie raises an age-old question. Um, this other magazine that comes next here is Newsweek, of all things. Who was Jesus? Did he have a wife in a manger or a cave? Why Bethlehem? How many wise men were there? Um, along with the Tea Party implodes, the end of Pasa is Obama ignoring Israel. Either way, going on to the next one. Um, Life magazine, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Next one, U.S. News and World Report. Talking about Jesus. I'm not sure how they're into theology, but somehow they're now into theology. Okay, next one. You got National Geographic, the most theologically oriented magazine I can imagine. Um, it's talking about the real Jesus and, and what archaeology, you know, talks in regards to that. Um, these are just five. There's dozens of other magazines and articles that are out there. Um, you, you have a, a lot of media opportunities. And you have images that are presented to you all the time, what that is. I mean, this guy uh, is, is one that we know. I mean, this is Jim Caviezel, but he's really Jesus, okay? And then more recently, this guy, the chosen. I like this Jesus. He's funny. He's warm. I like him a lot. I, I, I like the show, I like the movies, I like all the bags, I love all the presentations of all this. Um, there is a bit of a danger with a lot of this, though, that I would just say as a side note to you um, to be conscious of. You see, when you see a movie or a television show like The Chosen, and there's some cool parts to it, and they do some great work with it. The tendency can be, upon seeing that or a movie though, is when we read the scripture, is to imagine those scenes. In other words, those become more real to us than the scripture does. And so we're like, yes, it has to have been that way. That's how now in my head, that's what it is, and that's the understanding of it. And there's a little bit of a danger there. I, I enjoy the chosen, but I, well, even with my background, I have to stop myself and say, wait a minute, that's not, that's a projection of what someone's saying, outside of whatever scripture is used exactly as it is, the imagery, the moment, the timing of that. Uh, and the chosen, they did this beautiful rendition of, of Mary's coming to the understanding of Christ that I just found powerful, but I'm also sitting here saying it's absolutely, totally extra biblical. There's no indication of that. It was in someone's imagination. So it's a caution that we need to have. Whenever we see the movies, the books, um, uh, uh, so much the books, the movies, the television shows, the magazines, um, there's a danger also about this. Let me, let me ask you, how many of you saw any portion of the Lord of the Rings movies? So show of hands, okay? A whole bunch of you did, okay? Let me ask you, same thing now. How many of you have read the books? Men, many fewer hands. Okay, I read the books when I was a kid. Now, I understand... For many of you, we just veered into geekdom 101, okay? Anything involving hobbits and dwarfs is weird, all right? But I want you to follow what I'm saying here. Tolkien created an elaborate world, right down to the aspect of specific languages with rules and everything else that was part of it. The books are massive. I read those when I was a kid. I, I'd read them several times, and then I see the movies. But what I come to the movie with is my understanding rooted in the books, and so I'm able to fill in gaps that no movie can ever fully convert. And it was a good rendition. It was a good interpretation, the movies were. 
But there's gaps. There's things that, that you get a misunderstanding of looking at it, actually. If you don't understand what's happening, there's a suicide of a, of a character that portrays the character completely different than how the book is going to portray them and gives an understanding as to why they did those things. I'm very glad I read the books first. The movies fill in. They're wonderful to have. But So I'm not going to ask you this. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have seen all these movies about Jesus or all the television shows about Jesus and all the magazine covers. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have read the book. I fear the answer. <laughs> but if we're dependent upon other people's imaginations and other people's interpretations or renditions, then by default, the picture's not going to be complete and at the very least, in the best rendition, gaps and holes. You need to take hold of this for yourself. Now, there's been a controversy recently, and my purpose in this next step is to not enhance that controversy or, frankly, even enter, enter into the controversy. It's simply to try to draw from it a bit of an example of what we're talking about here. Um, if you, any of you, a couple of weeks back on Sunday, saw this game that did not matter okay? They called it the Super Bowl, all right? When the Lions weren't in it, it stopped being the Super Bowl. Um, but if you saw it, there was a commercial. And this commercial is part of a whole campaign until he gets us. And um, if you missed it, I, I just, just so we have an understanding what we're talking about, let me, let me show it to you a little bit. It, it, was, it was a lot of money, a lot of people saw it. He gets us. After this one was, was run, um, a bunch of, of people that are decidedly not Christian uh, um, in their perspectives um, were heavily attacking it because even though it's obscure on exactly who is funding it, it's, they know for sure that some of these are extremely conservative um, uh, Christians who would have contributed to causes that they don't like at all uh, and towards people. And so the liberals attacked it. Um, shortly after that, a lot of Christians got on board with that as well, too, saying it was too woke or it was in other issues and trying to fine-tuning and picking it apart. Um, I'm not trying to add into that controversy. I will say that as I've seen this commercial and I've seen others, when they first came out, this, the program or the, the process, I, I thought, oh, this is really kind of cool and great. And then as it goes on, I find myself uncomfortable. And I've tried to tap down a little bit why I find his comfort, and I think I've come to an understanding of that. Um, and I... I Here's one thing. It, it did invoke a lot of chatter. People are talking about this, Christians, non-Christians. Um, and in that sense, the people who put this together are saying that they've succeeded in what they wanted because um, it's gotten this conversation you know, going and moving along. 
What I found interesting, and, and not trying to get into the conflict over it, what I found interesting was what followed. You've got this, and he gets this, and I will say this. I think the reason why I find this campaign uncomfortable is because it's heavily focused on us, and we're narcissistic as it is. It's all about us. It's all about trying to come down to the level of where we are at, and, and some of the identities of that, I, I think, are, are, I understand why, but it, there's a danger to it. Um, there is a pastor in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom. Um, and he saw this, and he says this. He says, I felt like the original advertisement was a missed opportunity of sorts. I felt like it might have been well-intentioned. There's a degree of truth there that Jesus loves and serves everybody. But he said he didn't believe the message presented in the original video is the best and most effective message that could have been conveyed. He says, I think it missed some of the key points that we would want to get across. I, I wish I could read this in an Irish accent. Not going to happen today, but it's, it's just a cool accent, okay? So he says, essentially, what came across was, as doing was putting a sort of Jesus-shaped stamp of approval on the ideas, values, and actions of our generation that are common today, which in many cases are not the things of which Jesus is approving. He says, the gospel message does not just leave sinners in despair. The gospel message is a great message. It's the message of salvation from our sin. He added um, that, that the previous ad failed to convey anything of the gospel to hundreds of millions um, who saw it. And then he was prompted to create something else that's now gone viral and created a huge buzz. And as I present this next one, um, uh, if you don't know uh, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, he's uh, the foremost intellectual atheist that's out there. Okay, so if you don't know that one. All right, and so here's the one that he says should have run in his view, in his view. conveying with this is, you can or not, it's, it's fine, it's just, I'm, I'm just, again, I'm not competing with these items of these two and trying to, well, that, that, I, mean, I, I do think that there's something portrayed with this, though, that's a little deeper in its purposes. What I'm trying to draw your attention to, though, are the various ways um, that Jesus is portrayed that aren't necessarily healthy or good for us. Um, some of these campaigns and other ones have tried to portray Jesus as a Palestinian refugee or an illegal refugee. And he was not um, a Palestinian refugee, nor was he an illegal alien. Um, he was not Che Guevara, a type of, of Cuban revolutionary who shot up things. He wasn't that kind of revolutionary either. Others have portrayed him as a financially struggling, anxiety-ridden person, so he can identify with your struggle. He, he, he wasn't rich in those sense, but he, there was no sense of anxiety or struggle uh, in that. Others, many others in the church, have portrayed him as a MAGA Republican, you know, as, as a heavy right-wing, you know, 
America first type person type, and that, you know, wasn't Jesus either. And so we get this flood of different perceptions, and we all do this at different times. We have perceptions of people maybe that upon first meeting them, we have a perception that we find later is not true, or they've been portrayed to us a certain way, and then we engage in a conversation, we realize that wasn't an accurate portrayal. And so we run around with all these perceptions through media and through other sources, and especially if we haven't read the book, but even sometimes when we have, then, then we end up with all these perceptions of who Jesus is that aren't accurate or are sometimes incomplete. The central issue of this conversation that we're going to have over the next couple of weeks is just that, the identity of, of who he is. Jesus says this was central. At one time, he asked disciples, who did they say? Who do you say that I am? The understanding of who he is. One of the things I would wonder about a little bit with the, with the first one, with the He Gets Us campaign, is it's aimed at non-Christians. And the, the concept behind it is it's trying to convey, I think, to non-believers that look at the churches and this hate-filled type of thing where we're kind and loving and caring and, and, and you can trust us and do all the rest that goes with that. Um, I wonder, though, if even if that was the intent, if they understand that they kind of missed the mark with that for this reason. Non-Christians don't know what foot washing is about. It's a biblical concept. And so, I don't know. I, I really believe that they were aiming it towards a non-Christian audience, but with the attempt to reach them with the gospel, but it's a, either that or else they are actually targeting Christians. Either way, accidentally it ends up being that because Christians are the ones who understand what that principle is about. And so it's possible the message is being targeted, consciously or unconsciously, to saying, hey, Christians, you need to be aware to be more loving or kind or gentle or humble and that. And that's not a bad thing to hear. And maybe we need to hear. Maybe that's why it makes us a little uncomfortable or, just, or so. I, I don't think that's fully the reason, though. Because even in that, there is a bit of an issue you see, the only time, and, and the message is saying here that, wait a minute, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. And if I'm an unbeliever, I look at that and think, wow, Jesus just wandered the streets with a basin and a towel and just, hey, dude, <laughs> started washing everybody's feet he ran into. And that's not what he did. Um, also, he didn't teach hate. And that's, that's true. He did not teach hate. But he did tell us to hate. He told us to hate sin. He told us to hate evil. He told us to hate those things within us that sabotage ourselves and destroy and dismantle. To love righteousness. There's only one time in Scripture where foot washing is referenced as, um, at least what Christ was involved, and it's the passage we just, wow, what do you think? We just read that one. What a coincidence. It's the Last Supper. There's been first the triumphal entry. Jesus has come in and everyone's cheering and, and I'm sure the disciples are going up to the upper room in a celebration with the idea that, wow, we're, we're finally here. It's going to be the celebration. He's going to be the, the king of everything. We're going to come alongside. They're sitting at the table. Now, a little context for you. Um, donkeys, horses, all these animals um, are very productive in the way of waste products. A lot of crap, okay? This was true even in the United States. Up until the advent of the car, uh, it was said in Chicago that the stadium that they would have, the current stadium, would have been filled, I think it was three feet or six feet deep, all the way across with manure 
That was just the daily distribution. And so if you go into the ancient times where that, in fact, here's an ironic thought. When the car was invented, it was thought and, and looked to as a way to end pollution of the, you know, layered kind. Um, so in the time of Christ, this would have been present. Open sewers, uh, sidewalks wouldn't have been around. Um, you would have come to a feast like this and you would have washed beforehand. Maybe you didn't wash all year, but you washed for this feast. But you could not avoid with open sandals, no Nikes, you're running around with open sandals, you're, you're stepping into stuff. There's no way to avoid that. And as if that wasn't bad enough, when you'd step into the house, usually someone would wash the feet. There'd be a servant would do that. It was a lowliest task. And, um, and, and yet somebody had not done that. There was no servant there or, or it hadn't happened for some reason. And you think, well, okay, it's bad enough. You're, you're sitting at the table. Your feet are under the table at least, thank heavens. No, 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 no. This was Roman style. This was Eastern style. And so what you would do is you would have been reclining on your, on your elbow, curl your feet up on the little cushion next to you, and you're eating your food, which means your feet are right next to the next guy's head. And so I'm sitting here and I'm sniffing Thomas the whole time I'm having my hummus, okay? And that would have been the way it would have been around a chain all the way around the table. Nobody done it. Why did anybody do it? We might have a little bit of a clue from um, Luke, I think it is the 22nd chapter or so, because he indicates in that chapter, in that verse, that they entered into the room with a debate over who's greatest. They were probably amped up over the idea that Jesus is going to be you know, entering into this, getting this glory and all this attention. So who do you think is going to be next after Jesus? Well, I think it's going to be me because, you know, I'm, I'm just the best. Well, I think I'm the best. And they would have this debate going on, and this is what's going on around the table as they're entering in. Everyone's smelling the other person's feet, they, it's kind of gross. They know, and, and so why doesn't someone do that? Because if they do, they lose the debate immediately. <laughs> See, we knew you were the lesser one. You're doing the servant thing. They were fearful of loss of status. They were fearful of how they'd be viewed. And so they didn't pay attention to it. And it's not like it wasn't in the room. They could, they could not have avoided the element of the awareness of it. It's in this context that Jesus stops, wraps a towel around himself, goes along and begins to wash the feet, shocking them in what he's doing, what they are afraid to do, what they will not do, he chooses to do. He gets to Peter and Peter says, no, 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 no. And, and, and Jesus makes it clear, look at you're not part of me. We're not in fellowship. You don't have no connection with me unless I do this. There's something beyond the foot washing he's doing here. It's not just a cleaning act. It's not even just a humbling act. He's kind of cleansing that last little bit. He's saying, look, you're washed but there's still a final cleansing. Then he says, not everyone is clean. In other words, not everyone is righteous. You are righteous. You are covered in the grace of what's here. But not everyone, because Judas, Judas is, he's, he's a slime bag. He's going to go do something pretty nasty. But for you guys, just the ceremonial washing of your feet is sufficient. So it wasn't just this act of, of, of the washing. There was something Jesus was saying, this is completing you in me. Now, he does sit here and say that, look at you, each ought to wash others' feet. That um, you should be a part of this and do this for others. And so there are some churches, there are some people, there are some things that they annually, the bishops will wash everyone else's feet, the Pope washes people's feet, pastors and other ones will do that as a show of, you know, humiliation. It's not talking about a one-time issue. It's not talking even really about feet at the end of the day. What it's talking about is an attitude. 
What it means is that Jesus, he's doing the things others have not or will not do. For fear of loss of status or because of what others are going to think of them or because it's viewed in some eyes as demeaning. So the issue is not even washing feet. The real issue is what is it that, that is around you that would serve others that you're afraid of doing because it'll indicate a loss of status or someone will look at you strange or, or whatever the case is, but it's a legitimately good thing to have done. Not things people look at as strangely because it's a stupid thing to be doing or it's a wrong thing to do, but it's something that needed to be done. This was sitting there in the room. The stench was there. People's feet are in the face of the other people and nobody's going to move first on it for fear that someone's going to view them as lesser or take advantage of them or seize on things. How many things do we do not do because we fear that we'll be losing the advantage or the edge or someone will view us in a certain way or it lessens our status? This was the, tr- the core of what was being presented here. And this was something that was supposed to be then part of the life all the time, not just the washing of a feet. It was the concept that was much deeper and beyond that. When another misunderstanding of Jesus... The thing projected oftentimes today is Jesus really hated the church leadership and was really against the church leadership and attacking these guys because the fact that they were just simply in church leadership, it was corrupt, the whole thing. But Jesus really loved hanging out with all these sinners and all these people that were doing wrong and, and he, he hung with that and they're, they're great just because they're sinners. That's not the case. He had a problem deeply with the institutional church and the church leadership because they didn't see themselves as needing salvation or needing grace. They thought they were fine just as they were. And because of that blindness, they couldn't receive the message of Christ. Not all of them, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Paul eventually, there were those in church leadership that came to understand, but many didn't. They were caught up with all of that. But it wasn't against just the institutionalizing or the fact of positioning. It was the blindness that they had. He loved the sinners because the sinners knew as prostitutes and and tax collectors and and all the rest, they knew that they were trash. They knew they didn't line up on things. They knew that. And because of that, they could get saved because they realized their sin and they were conscious of their need for it. He didn't affirm them in their sin. And that's where I do think this second one that was presented really gets it right. It's not about him getting us. Of course he gets us. But if that's all we stay at, then we feed into the narcissism that is our lives and is our culture. What's more important is, do we get him? Do we understand him? Do we know him? Do we, are we conscious of our own sin? And if we are conscious of our own sin and our shortcomings, then that's where he saves us, transforms us, cleanses us, restores us, forgives us, heals us, delivers, redeems, and loves us. With the foot washing thing, if we're really going to apply that, then if I'm actually going to wash someone's feet in the context of John 13, then they need to accept that they're arrogant and selfish. I don't know if that's really the message that he gets us people are trying to convey. That's the context of this, though. With that awareness, repentance is possible. Jesus approaches these guys. He is, he is secure in himself, doesn't fear loss of status, doesn't fear how he'll be viewed. So he has no problem getting down and manually washing God, washing the feet and taking off 
the manure and the other pollutants off of these guys' feet. He has no problem. He's completely secure in that. May we be as secure. Not in ourselves, but in, in God's grace. There's something else, though, that, that runs on this thing that really has caught me. Before I go to that, one other thing, I'll just say this. Um, it's easy to criticize those that have dirty feet instead of washing them. Just a thought, if you really do want to carry that metaphor out. Another thing, if you're really going to carry the metaphor out and stay in that lane at all, then there's sometimes, I think, that we have to be careful of the temperature of the water because sometimes we can come with really boiling hot advice and, and emotion and burn what's there. Or sometimes we can be very cold and different and um, that's a different thing. So that's a side point, I'd say. But what really catches me about, especially the second video, is it ends with five words uh, before the final ending. Uh, did you catch that? The five words were, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Are those words familiar to you at all? For some of you, it's familiar. For many others, you need to read the book, okay? Because you'll find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if we go to that passage, then let me give context as it's there for a minute. This is being written to the Corinthians, okay? And um, it wasn't like there was one Corinthian and then there's later two Corinthians. Okay, it's first book to the Corinthians, second book to the Corinthians. They were a people that lived in the city of Corinth in Greece. It was a key city in Greece. It was also a port town and it was a wild, rollicking town. It was known for its perversity, known for its immorality. And the church that was established there was still struggling with some of that as well, too. But it also started to come out of that. So he's writing and says, do you not know that the righteous, that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says. Remember, we talked about lies last week. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, what's the next line? Let, let's try this again. There's five, five uh, six, we'll say, okay? Let's begin, and and end at you. So let's together and such were some of you. Boom, for anybody who's reading the letter and saying, yeah, these people." He's like, such were some of you. The list that was just read out. But, but it wasn't a condemnation saying, that's what you were. Such were some of you. But the passage, the letter goes on and says, but you were washed, washed cleansed, baptized, if you will. It, it, later, it makes it clear it's being washed in the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God sanctifies us. It gives us an understanding. In other words, read the book, okay? It gives you an understanding of things. So you were washed, you were sanctified. There's a, there's a part where there's transformation occurs. And then you were justified. We stand before God not because of our abilities, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done in us. Washed in the Word, sanctified by his sacrifice, we now stand justified. We're cool with God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is a powerful passage that relates to everybody in this room. All of us. Over the next five weeks, there are five meta-narratives, 
five overarching elements of Christ and his journey that I want to bring to you as we walk into Easter. Um, but before we conclude today, I, I, I want to answer, at least in part, what the question is of who is Jesus. We've touched on some elements of what people say. We've countered some of those statements out and given some of the scriptural ones that there are. But there's a passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 20 through 20. And before we close this today, I want to read this passage to you to um, not give my impression to you, but what the scripture says. It says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, people always wonder, well, how would God do things? What if he was walking? What if he, how? Christ answers that. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. is supreme over all creation. Through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. This is the second or third time it's said in the passage. In other words, he is God. He holds all creation together. If Christ were to cease to exist, all of reality would cease to exist. We exist only because Christ exists. He holds it all together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He's the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Through Christ, God reconciled everything. It doesn't mean everybody is going to be, but everything that needs to be resolved to bridge the gap between God and man is resolved in Christ. That's the central thing we need to know about him. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. I don't, I'm not condemning the he gets us thing. I, I, I'm not comfortable with it for a variety of reasons, mostly because I think it just feeds into our narcissism. I also think it doesn't give a complete picture of who Jesus is, and especially this last one. I am drawn to the second one because when it says he saves us, transforms us, cleanses us, restores us, forgives us, heals us, delivers, redeems, and loves us, that resonates with me. Not because it just resonates with me, but it resonates because it's consistent with what I see in Scripture and what we know about Jesus Christ. Forgive me for coming back to this from a couple of weeks ago. Because you can believe this or see this. But the real question really is, has it touched the whole of your life? We sang, at, at, and, and we're going to close here in a moment, but we, we sang at the offering time about him being Lord of us. As Americans, we don't like anybody to be Lord of us. It means authority. It means a ruler. It means someone whom we look to before we would do something or we look to see whether he approves or disapproves. If all you've done your whole life is seek his hands, then you don't know who Jesus is. 
So all you've done is count on the magazines or the movies or the television shows that are good or even ad campaigns, which all can be good. Even this latter one that we've referenced here. But you haven't read the book. If you haven't explored it, then you don't know who Jesus is. So over these next few weeks, we're going to try and walk that out. That's it for now. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I just pray that, um, again, in these few moments here, that you'd work the details of what's been done here into our heart and mind. Help us to realize, even just in this moment of time, that we stand, we stand literally in the presence of God. And we approach you very humbly, very carefully, very cautiously, but very freely we approach you now. All of my steps are ordered by you. You give every breath that I take. And only a kind God gives power to choose. So it is my privilege to say, You are the Lord. You're the Lord of my life. You are the Lord. You're the Lord of my life. Jesus Christ. Oh
Father, this morning we stand in your presence. And Lord, we have so many impressions of who you are. So many things that stream at us, some with different agendas. I pray, Lord, over these next couple of weeks that we would really get down to the details, that we'd come to an understanding truly of who you are past our perceptions, past what people are trying to tell us, to really know you. That, Lord, in these next few weeks, we would truly seek your face, your identity, your character, your nature, and not just what you can give us, not just your hands. Guide us in this journey, I pray. Give us an understanding that can transform our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.